Hello, everybody. This is G, and welcome to the SITRET Podcast, the modern military gaming podcast. And with me today is Jim, and it looks like it's just a two-person recon team today as Ralph is off uh, writing background and getting ready for his Ghost Ops RPG. And Chris, I think, might be buried under a ton of snow there in the great white north of Canada. Uh, hopefully, he'll join us here soon. Um, so, Jim... Yes, ma'am. How you doing? Good. It is that time. So, anything hobby-wise before we get into the meat and potatoes of the podcast? Oh, yeah. Um, I've actually been building some miniatures, getting started on some uh, some Deutsches Africa Corps uh, miniatures, 28 millimeter from Warlord. I'm starting a little riverine assault boat. And, uh, yeah, some other projects going on, uh, some modern warfare going in our weekly uh web games that we've been playing recently so yeah i've been i've been staying busy so tell me about this boat okay the boat the boat's kind of a weird story um last year uh i took my girlfriend uh for christmas uh she has a big thing for sea world so she's like you know whenever i ask her what she wants for christmas she's like i want to go back to sea world i want to go back to sea world We've been there like 400 times by this point. She still <laughs> just wants to go to SeaWorld. That's fine. So we go to SeaWorld, and uh, in one of the gift shops, I see this little, I guess it's supposed to be like a, some sort of whale rescue boat. Like the boats that you see on some of these shows where they go on, they, they try to chase off, you know, Japanese or Norwegian, uh, you know, illegal uh, uh, whaling boats or whatever, and try to protect the whales or whatever. Because sure. it's a SeaWorld yeah. and whatever. And I'm looking at this boat, and it's got a quote-unquote I'm doing air quotes now. You can't see. Um, <laughs> it's got this quote unquote, uh, you know, water hose cannon because, you know, you everyone's seen those shows um, on the bow of this little assault boat. And it's just a cheap little 50 caliber machine gun that they have painted blue. Um, it's, a, it's a kid's toy. I mean, it, it floats in the bathtub. It had a little propeller and a little double A bolt battery or something that, you know, buzzes around. Yeah. So it was like six bucks on clearance. So I said, oh, what the heck? I bought it. Um, Took it up to my dad's house recently. My dad um, has, you know, the the ultimate, uh, you know, when, when Lloyd goes to sleep at night and he has these feverish dreams about terrain building, he dreams of my dad's workshop. <laughs> uh, my dad's workshop is just ridiculous. It's like a former, like six car garage, converted garage. It's bigger than most people's houses. It's nice. definitely bigger than my house. Definitely bigger than my house. So he's got all these great, you know, power tools and, you know, actually like industrial grade, uh, you know, equipment that he that uh, he uses for his for his job or whatever so i go up there and i'm like hey let me go ahead and uh so i took this boat stripped off all of the whale rescue stuff uh, uh cut it down to the water line uh, mounted it on a nice you know smoothed out piece of um cabinet wood to make a nice base out of it got some hot glue got the hot glue to look like um you know the ripples of the water as it's moving through the uh, as it's moving through the water because this, uh, as humble a toy as this boat started out as, it's like I, I put some 20 millimeter guys on as a size test. It's like a perfect 20 millimeter, you know, the, like the, the little doors that lead into like where the pilot house on the boat is. It's right. like a little like, it's the perfect size. You know, the, the guys fit right in the door or whatever. And it's, it's all, it's, it's absolutely perfect. So I said, I'm going to just turn this into a uh, long story short. I'm going to uh, work on this, um, uh, 
and just on this toy and see if I can rescue it, so to speak, and turn it into a proper 20 millimeter, sort of a, a an unofficial riverine assault boat, uh, kind of a miniature for use with some of my 20 millimeter miniatures, maybe for force on force, uh, maybe for like a converted version of spec of, um, skirmish sanguine. Um, yeah, projects like that. Excellent. The, the heavy lifting is done. Like I said, I do the heavy lifting when I'm up at my dad's workshop. Uh huh. Cause I mean, I have like modeling tools that we all have. He has like, power saws, table saws, press drills, you know, stuff that you can literally build a house with um, at one-to-one scale, you know. So whenever there's something serious to do, you know, that requires, you know, wood or screws or like big time power tools, I do want them at my dad's shop. And uh, yeah, so all the heavy lifting is done when I get done with my uh, bolt action uh, uh, Africa Corps army that I got at the boot camp recently, mm-hmm. um, which is about half done. Uh, so probably February, I'm going to get back to this boat and hopefully finish her up. Um, I got a bunch of, uh, 20 millimeter heavy weapons, like some M60s, maybe some 50 cals I can put on the, uh, the, the four and a half, uh, weapon stations, who knows what else. Um, you know, obviously paint it up in like a jungle camouflage kind of a scheme. Um, maintain that clear, uh, hot glue, uh, wave wake sort of, uh, effect, which came out looking really nice. Actually, I just have to make sure not to paint over it now. Um, and uh, of course the ba- the base itself uh, right now, it's just like a nice polished wood. I want to make it like, you know, obviously like a, like a gray green or a brownish green, kind of a river, you know, uh, watercolor. Sure. And, um, yeah, it should be a, a nice little, uh, a display piece if nothing else. Um, I mean, who knows how often I get to use it on a table cause it's relatively large. It's almost a foot long, um, at 20 millimeter, but, um, wow. yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a nice little piece when it's all, uh, when it's all put together. That sounds awesome. Uh, hopefully, we can get some pictures posted up on the Facebook page so we can take a look at it. That'd be really a nice little project. Are you going to put it in uh, the projects under OTT Beast of War as well? Are you thinking? Um, yeah, once I get a little more progress on it. Like right now, I have like three photos of it. Like gotcha. the, the photo, the, the 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 boat in the box, the boat like as it originally existed in the way it looks now, which is like, you know. Page one, chapter one. Uh, when it gets to be a little bit more of a narrative, I'll, 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 put, I'll go ahead and put something up. Uh, again, it won't be like a true miniature because obviously I didn't buy this from Spectre or you know any of the other. And, and it'll be a little rough around the edges because again, it's 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 a rescue toy is sure. really what it is. Sure. Um, but it's like a it's a cool project. You know, hey, can you take nothing and make something out of it or whatever? You know, uh, I didn't spend you know fifty bucks on it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be fun to see. Uh, It'll be fun to see what uh, what can come of it in the end. Oh, most definitely. I mean, anytime you can do some kit bashing, it's amazing what people can take, you know, from an unassuming toy at an amusement park, a theme park, and turn it into something totally different. So it's always a good project. And people like to see how it progresses. And, you know, from your past work, you do really great work in converting things and building from scratch. So it'll be really interesting to see what you do with this. So, well, it's, 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 I like to build things from scratch because that way I have an excuse when it doesn't look as good as uh, some people's <laughs> miniatures. I can always say, well, it was just, you know, this is totally scratch built or this was a toy from SeaWorld. So, you know, cut me some slack. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Any other, any hobby projects you're working on right now? Uh, for hobby, that's pretty much it. Those are my two. I, I'm I'm kind of uh, assaulting the lead mountain, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm really trying. I got some 20 millimeter DAK guys I got for Christmas last year 
that I was determined to finish before Christmas this year. And again, this boat and the new uh, 28 millimeter uh, German Army in Africa uh, project uh, left over from the uh, bolt action boot camp. Um, I'm really, really trying to, uh, you know, because I mean, you hear all these horror stories on the web. I mean, people have like a basement. They basically have a gaming store in their basement or a storage shed or a storage unit. And it's all, you know, every time a new Kickstarter comes out, they want to go out and buy. 10 more models or 10 more boxes or a whole new army. And yeah. oh, this game came out and with a lot of sci-fi and fantasy, unlike historical, with a fantasy and historical uh, setting, the army itself is completely, um, what's the word, like indigenous to that game. You know, like, like you buy a bunch of guys for Drowned Earth or something. Yeah. Okay, you can't really use those guys in Bolt Action or Flames of War. You, you know, as opposed to a tiger, you can use that in almost any game historical world war ii game so they, they buy all these games and uh long story short they wind up with this huge closet full of crap i'm the i am determined never i mean nothing <laughs> against that but i'm determined never to get myself in that situation so right now my lead mountain could fit in basically a shoebox. oh wow uh, and i'm determined to eliminate even that before i buy anything else there are some things i definitely do want to buy there are some big time projects i want to buy but I'm, I'm really trying to be uh to be a little disciplined and, and clean out the old stuff first. Well, I am guilty as charged. I have a hobby room full of stuff. We actually have a separate walk-in closet full of stuff that needs to be built, painted, used. And it's some of it uh, has been sitting there unopened f for several years now. You know, it's a yeah. uh, perfect example is Test of Honor, the samurai Japanese uh, okay. medieval warfare. I bought the whole kit and caboodle when they had their pre-order before the game was released. And unfortunately, it's just been sitting in the original shipping box. Um, I haven't even had a chance to you know, put it together or do anything with it. And I hear it's a pretty good game. So it's, it's on the list. Uh, you know, it's, speaking of other lead miniatures, I pulled out my uh, Ranger squads from um, Radio Dish Desk Skirmish Engine that I got from one of the Kickstarters that I have to paint. I've got uh, some squads of modern infantry. I think they're from uh, Miniature Building Authority. I got from Kirk at a convention. I still have my uh, two razors that I have to put together from Spectre that I got at UK Games Expo two years ago. Um, oh, man. You know, and that was before they really released them, so I got them early, and I haven't even had a chance to put them together yet. So, unfortunately, life gets in the way a lot of the times, but, uh, you know, I, I think my New Year's resolution is to spend at least one hour a night, 30 minutes to an hour a night doing some hobby project. So right. I think that's a realistic goal. Do you have any New Year's resolutions hobby-wise or game-wise? Uh... <laughs> I'm one of those people that starts my New Year's resolution on, on December 1st. <laughs> um, no, I really do. And uh, and it was it was literally two-pronged, and I've, I've kind of already talked about it. It was number one, look, I want to buy Ryan's Leathernecks from uh, um, Team Yankee. Mm -hmm. I really, really do. Um, it's, it's the Marine Corps 1980s, uh, early 1990s set, and for Team Yankee, obviously I will not be painting these in um, – in you know Germany jungle or whatever forest uh, NATO you know four color scheme or whatever right. I want to build I want to build a uh, I want to build a desert storm army okay 
of a historical Desert Storm Army because that kit comes with the M60 83 with the ERA plates. It comes with, I think it comes with the ERA plates. If not, I'll build them separately. But it definitely does come with the late model Marine Corps M60s, which the Marines were still using at that time, unfortunately. Um, the Army wasn't letting us play with M1 Abrams yet. <laughs> it's got the uh, LAV-25. It's got the Humvee, the early model Humvees. Uh, it's, you know, perfect 1991 Gold Force stuff. Um, I desperately do want to build that Army uh, sooner rather than later. First half of, of uh, 2019. Um, especially with a lot of this stuff that's coming out right now for Fate of a Nation. Um, we were talking a couple podcasts ago about like what would your wish be i swear i did not know this ahead of time it's almost gonna seem like i was cheating or whatever you know picking something that i wanted in 2019 that flames of war was actually or i should say battlefront was already doing mm -hmm. i haven't seen an official announcement yet but whenever they do an unboxing for the new fate of a nation stuff john or jerry turn the box over and they don't like point to it or they don't make note of it but i notice it i see it and it says right there on the back of the box is the new website it's uh let's see if i can remember how it goes now it's um aiw underscore team yankee underscore whatever uh, battlefront.com or something like that and it's like okay they finally they finally did it they expanded fate of a nation and rather than doing it as a Flames of War sequel, they're doing it as a Team Yankee prequel. And they're releasing things like the Shilka. The Shilka, had just, had, they just did the unboxing recently on OTT. Um, and again, the Shilka is something you don't see until 1973 war. And uh, what was the other one? Uh, the T-62 um, for the, either the Syrians or the Egyptians. Again, you don't see that until 1973. Mm -hmm. So... Fate of the Nation was a great uh, kit. Oh, it was a great, you know, expansion for Battlefront Flames of War back in the day. For some reason, they picked 1967. Historically, not the most interesting war. There's really only maybe three battles in the whole war that are even worth setting up on a, on a 15 millimeter table. 73 is a different story, but 73, the technology changes quite a bit to where, honestly, I don't think the Flames of War system would handle it very well. So I think what they're doing is they're doing it as a Team Yankee prequel. And that's where I think the sweet spot is. Um, long with this uh, way of saying that's definitely some more stuff I definitely do want to buy. I've always wanted to do um, 73 in some sort of 15 millimeter miniature. Sure. Um, set up some uh, late M48s, the M48A5s, those are the Magog 5s, I think. Um, it's really... It's really tank designations are confoundingly complex. Anyone who says piece of war on tabletop in the, here on the sit rep, anyone who claims they understand it is lying either to you or to themselves. They don't understand <laughs> it. Um, I think these Israelis do that on purpose to keep their military a little opaque. Um, yeah, they're there. So that's definitely something else I want to buy. Long story short, New Year's resolution, clean out the old stuff first before I go onto websites and I start clicking buttons. Gotcha. Um, definitely want to do that. And the other thing was the, was the Dark Star rules. Uh, uh, not really. I'll go through this very quickly because it's not really a Modern War focus. But oh, please take time. We've been playing Dark Star here locally for since February 2017. We're coming up on seven years. Um, the rules, we're constantly tweaking them. So... 
it's almost like I almost feel like a parent, like raising a child or whatever. You know, <laughs> as long as the kid is in the house, you can help, you can guide, you can make little adjustments, you can, you know, try to fix things, you can try to, you know, but in order for that kid to grow up, sooner or later, you have to send them out in the world. And writing these rules and finally putting them out there, it was 39 days of work. And when I say days of work, I mean like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. mornings for 39 days straight, mm-hmm. right in the middle of the holiday season, basically between Thanksgiving and Christmas, or Thanksgiving and New Year's, really. Um, but again, once the uh, oh, once the Let's Play went out, some YouTube videos went out, the project's uh, site really got reinvigorated. Uh, people on multiple platforms um, are, you know, con- I mean, my email was just filling up with where are these rules? Where are these rules? Somebody please write down these rules. I said, fine. And, you know, let me do this before 2019 because I want 2019 to be a fresh start. So crushed out those rules, put them out there. And, uh, yeah, people are starting associated projects on the Beast of War site. People are starting new YouTube videos uh, now on the site. Uh, Umbermancer has his own video now. We're doing it on Roll um, on, a, on a D20. We're doing it on virtual tabletop. We're doing it in web conference. Um, the next step is probably Twitch uh, to where we can actually put it out in front of a wider audience. Um, check out the um, – the, um, the projects uh, page on uh, on tabletop.com if you want to download the rules yourself and give it a try. We play live just about every weekend. Um, reach out to me if you want to get in on that, anybody, either to play or to spectate. We are, yeah, it's, it's definitely blowing up now that the rules are out there. And again, it's version one. The rules are going to have to get tweaked um, eventually again anyway, but really wanted to put that first big um, you know, staking the ground as far as getting the rules really out there. Sure. Take the best possible swing at it. It doesn't include everything. It doesn't include orbital installations, planetary assaults, ship to ship boarding actions, all the stuff that we do, you know, in Dark Star on the table. The rules couldn't possibly include everything. It doesn't include all the factions. It's only got about 30 of the. Uh, First wave, I'm calling it the first wave uh, classes of warships. There's over 100 plus like 14 different types of orbital and ground installations and all this other stuff going on. Um, it's, but it's a big first step. And we wanted to get that out there. We wanted to get that straightened out. Uh, again, to just make sure that 2019 is a nice, clean, you know, fresh start going forward. Nice. Very nice. That is excellent. And this is a game you created from the ground up. This isn't uh, yep. something you tweaked or anything like this, but this is something you had an idea and brought it to fruition. And you just published the rule book um, as a download link and everything like that. So, I mean, that's quite impressive. That is quite because oh, designing a game is not easy. I don't care what anybody thinks, you know. So, no, no, it's not. And it does borrow some degree from some games back in the 80s. I think all games borrow from somebody, you know. Um, so people who are, you know, playing hardcore, like, uh, Faza, uh, Star Trek tactical combat simulators, the old Renegade Legion, uh, games specifically, uh, Centurion, Interceptor, and Leviathan, um, Starfleet battles, again, the old Faza games back from the seventies, battle, uh, 1980s, Battletech back from the 1980s. It does borrow scraps, you know, from these other systems and kind of Frankensteins them together. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think any game is completely original. Um, and Dark Star would definitely be no exception. I mean, all games use six-sided dice, pretty much, or ten-sided dice, if nothing else. Uh, so we do. 
you know, we, there, there are influences. You know, that was kind of the point. You know, we sat down with our local group and we said, you know what, we want to create our idealized perfect. If we could just wave a magic wand, what would be our ultimate? Because we were all sci-fi fans. We want our ultimate starship combat game. Well, we like this about Star Trek. We like this about Star Wars. We don't like this about Battlestar Galactica, Space Battleship Yamato, um, Lost Fleet, uh, the Harrington Honor Series, uh, both versions of Battlestar Galactica. I probably already said that. All the old Star Trek games. Um Eve, uh, Mass Effect, uh, 20 or so uh, different franchises from everything from anime, comic books, TV, movies, novels, uh, you name it. We pulled it in. We put it in the blender. We we mixed it around and we kind of cherry picked what we liked and we spaced what we didn't like. And we we wound up with a system that we really enjoy. And uh, it's been a little bit of a journey to kind of put it out there so everybody can, can give it a swing. It's having a great response. We're a little limited in our bandwidth as far as like how much exposure we can get. Sure. Um, but wherever it is landing, it's it's growing. Um, I just have to figure out a way to, to maybe like I said, Twitch is probably the next big uh, the next big step forward. Anywhere anywhere it lands, it's it's growing. Yeah, the the, the seeds are landing on, on on fertile soil. It's an old school 1980s kind of a crunchy you know war game. This is not a Kickstarter game that you can play in you know 20 minutes. Um, you know, your first game will probably take you three or four hours, you know. Um, but I think one of the reasons it's really uh, getting this kind of response is certainly not everybody, but a big chunk of the gaming market, the gaming audience, kind of misses these games that actually challenge you a little bit. Um, the, these old school kind of chess games where, you know what, you have to stop and think really about where you're going to move and where you're going to fire because four turns down the line and on the table, that's going to be two hours away. Uh That's really going to affect you. It's really going to either benefit you or really, you know, bite you in the caboose, so to speak. You really got to think ahead. And especially if you're up against a good player, um, it's really going to be a tight, um, a tight experience. That's not a lot of games nowadays. I'm sorry to say, Mm -hmm. um, uh, not universally, but a lot of games out there are just way too, you know, two page two two page rule books. You know, here's your rule sheet. Here's a couple charts. Here's a couple cards. Have fun. Yeah, you, yeah. Admittedly, you can play in 20 minutes, and you can have your first couple of games in a couple hours. But after that, you're going to be bored with it, you know, because sure. the game the game doesn't have a lot of depth. Dark Star will take you a while to get started and to really sink your teeth into it, but you'll be playing it for years. It's a game with 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 no bottom. Excellent. Um, especially since we're not even done rolling out the rules yet. Like this this was version one, and there's there's a lot more that I just could not put in the book. The book is 146 pages as it is. Yeah. And it's the it's the basics. It is really the basics. So yeah, we'll definitely see where that goes uh, going forward. Excellent. And I know you uh, besides Dark Star, you do many other games that you do your conferencing, web streaming. And we know we've talked about possibility of Twitch streaming some of your games, you know, that relate to modern military, you know, like the uh, Arab-Israeli war and some of the other things. So I know you're working on, and then the Vietnam, uh, your Valor and Victory. So, and possibility of some Desert Storm, you know, I totally up to you. So, I mean, there's 
some programming that's going to come from there. And then speaking of other programming, you're going to start having your own little series, if you will. Um, you want to that is that? correct. Sure. Um, so uh, the command team here, so to speak, at, uh, at the Situation Report, or SITREP, we've been uh, kicking around some ideas for some additional content. So again, um, you are the CEO here, uh, G, so, correct, so definitely correct me if I'm wrong. I, I am your humble S3 staff operations officer. <laughs> um, so uh, from what I from what I can understand, yeah, these these podcasts are going on every two weeks. Yep. And we're trying to come up with we're trying to come up with some piece of content that can kind of bookshelf in between those those uh, semi weekly kind of um, you know podcast uh, releases. So you know, Chris is working on some stuff. We know Ralph is working uh, on a, his uh, his Ghost Ops RPG that he wants to start Twitch streaming out to uh, to a bunch of people. And uh, my contribution to that was going to be I think we settled. on on the operations center or the op center? Yep, op center. For a name? Okay. So there's going to be a um, an every two weeks uh, kind of video series called uh, the operations center uh, produced by myself. And what this is going to do is uh, people who are familiar with me from, you know, uh, Beasts of War on Tabletop, um, it's going to kind of uh, take the place of where those articles uh, used to be that I used to produce on that, on that website. And what it's going to do is it's going to take a historical look at modern military wargaming. So when we say modern wargaming, we're talking about post-1945. So it's not going to deal with World War II. It's going to be everything forward from World War II. Um, probably as early as, probably the earliest possible piece I would do would be the Greeks of War. Um, although we, we won't start there. And it would go straight all the way through to you know what happened yesterday what's happening today and what could potentially happen tomorrow stopping short of near future science fiction it obviously won't go that far forward so anything between say 1950 and 2020 or 2025 maybe even 2030 it's going to cover in there um, from a historical uh, perspective it's also going to take a look at these things from a strictly wargaming perspective we're never going to forget our roots uh, these won't just be you know um Risky, you know, likes to pretend that he's a defense analyst at the CIA or whatever. He's gonna, he's gonna tell us how you know 1967 Six Day War should have gone down. He's not gonna tell us about you know. It's gonna be a lot more. Uh, it's gonna stay with a wargaming focus, um, and it's going to take a look at things from a slightly more command tactical or operational perspective. So a little bit more of the high level, um, uh, high level meaning like higher command level. Um, there's, you know, three other people on the team, you know, potentially more in the future that are going to stick very heavily with the hobby uh, side of things and the skirmish tactical, you know, WYSIWYG games, one-on-one, -on -one, one figure equals one operator kind of war game. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I don't want to step on anyone's, you know, I want to leave plenty of elbow room for everybody. So we're going to be looking at things operational and command tactical. Um, these are unit-based games. One piece equals a fire team or a squad or maybe maybe even a whole platoon. 1945 forward and um, with a definite wargaming focus. We're going to be looking at GDW Assault Series. We're going to be looking at Avalon Hill's Arab-Israeli Wars, um, updates that I've been working on for Barry Doyle's Valor and Victory games, um, uh, the Steve Panthers of series of old video games, or I should say computer games, back in the day. There's probably a couple where I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Oh, Toshash Miniatures, uh, Tactical Combat Middle East, 
Um, that's for the Gulf War and for the 2003 uh, Iraqi Freedom War. Um, all kinds of stuff like that. Also, all the w modern war games that uh, Strategy and Tactics publishes for their uh, their Modern War magazine series, which again I highly recommend for anyone interested in modern warfare. Um, there is a there is a war game published in every issue of that series. Mm -hmm. It may not be the kind of war game that a lot of miniature gamers are used to, but if nothing else, even if you don't get into the war games that are included in those magazines, um, the ideas for background, the amount of military and uh, military intelligence and you know military operational data that gets poured into those magazines is actually quite startling. Um, you'll get ideas for wars that, because everyone's doing Iraq, everyone's doing Afghanistan. What about Angola, 1968 or something? Or how right. about, you know, how about uh, India? Yeah, India versus Pakistan, you know, the Valley of the Patents, they called it. Uh, there's all these little nook and cranny wars that, I mean, which in some ways is, is part of what makes modern wargaming, you know, kind of fun, is the fact that there are all these tiny little, you know, Bush conflicts, Nicaragua. How about the soccer war? Uh, 1982, El Salvador versus Honduras, I think. That war started over a soccer game. <laughs> um, I'm serious. <laughs> um, there's there's these tiny little wars that you can do that, hey, when you put it up on the site and you put it up on, on the tabletop or Beast of War or Facebook or, you know, who knows where you're going to put it. One thing you can say is nobody else is doing this. That's true. You know, I, I've never seen a project about the, uh, the, the, the 1982 soccer war. You could be the first, and you learn about these kind of things from this from this magazine. So these are the kind of conflicts that we're going to be covering um, in in the operations center. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure when they're going to get started. Um, I could probably start my first one this weekend. We have a long weekend um, here uh, here in the states, so I might be able to get started on the first one. I'm thinking about the first four parts of this to be about the Arab-Israeli conflicts. Nice. 19, 1956. Um, to include Operation uh, Musketeer, that's the British Navy, Royal Marines, and the uh, the French paratroopers were getting involved in that as well. Israeli versus Egypt when Nasser tried to nationalize the Suez Canal in 1956. That's the first big Arab-Israeli war besides the actual Israeli War of Independence, 1948 and 49. Uh, we can probably come back to that one later, but that's much more of a, a of a guerrilla war. Um, that takes place um, earlier in the 40s. But 56 is an actual battlefield war. Um, that's where you see a lot of Shermans, you know, cooking around a lot of old, you know, T-34s, SU-100s, things like that. Yeah. Leftover World, leftover world War II stuff. Um, of course, 67 is next. 1973 would be part three. That's probably the biggest, that is the biggest Arab-Israeli war. And then um, after that, we're going to go into Peace for Galilee in 1982. That's Israeli's invasion of uh, Lebanon, the start of the Lebanese Civil War. The Marine Barracks, you know, 1983 that everyone uh, yeah. uh, unfortunately remembers. And uh, who knows, we might even get back into the second war in Lebanon in uh, 2006, when uh, I think Israel had to go back in there again on, on a limited basis. Um, the raid on Entebbe, maybe uh, that would be more of the kind of thing that maybe you guys could handle with Skirmish Sanguine yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But there's, there's a famous raid on Entebbe. It's much more of a special forces commando kind of a thing. Um, yeah, the Arab-Israeli wars is... Uh, definitely a, a a book waiting to happen. I mean, it's what am I talking about? I have a shelf of books over here just about that. <laughs> There's hundreds of books written on it, um, but it's, a, it's definitely a series waiting to happen. After that, who knows? We could be talking about um, Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, um, enduring freedom up there in um, Afghanistan, 
uh, the Balkans, uh, Ukraine, uh, 2014, 2015. We can revisit that. I know that uh, Chris does a lot of work in that in that theater. Um, I have uh, some Panzer Leader uh, counters and scenarios drawn up for that that I play tested for an old article series. Um, there's there's plenty to talk about. Uh, there's I literally don't even know where the bottom would be on that series. Sure. Um, just you know, overcome a couple of technical limitations or whatever. Probably have to buy a new computer, which I need to do anyway. And uh, yeah, start uh, start pushing out those videos. Probably 15 to 20 minutes a piece uh, to start with. We'll we'll see how the response is. And then uh, we'll see uh, we'll see how big they get after that. Um, those are those are those are my plans for again. The, that the first sounds half of really great. Twenty nineteen. And you know, I while you were talking about different theaters of uh, conflict, one of the ones that's always interested me and that fits into this category is the French involvement in Indochina. Oh yeah. Um, you know, leading up to obviously American involvement in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and all that. So I would love to see you explore that area as well. You did an excellent uh, article series on the Tet Offensive. Um, yes. So, you know, you put that spin on it, and, you know, I think it, it, it leads so much meat for people to get ideas for gaming scenarios. Um, you know, a lot of the smaller conflicts you talk about that, you know, from many years back and gives so much more variety to uh, different games. And there's so many systems out there that you can use. And we're going to, um, in future episodes, we're going to do a little, I have a set of rules I want to talk about today. It's a two-page rule set. But um, we're going to, when everybody's together, we're going to talk about many different rule sets and start getting into the meat and potatoes of gaming in the modern era. And I know we um, all have a copy of the Ultra Combat Normandy rules, which is going to feed oh, yeah. into the Ultra Combat Modern rules from the Kickstarter from uh, Dish Dash Games, Radio Dish Dash, the guys behind Skirmish Sanjin. So I know Jim's got his copy to kind of break down from the historical, technical aspect, if you will. And then, you know, Chris is going to look at it from his aspect. You know, we're all going to look at it from our aspect. You know, Chris being former military, me being former military, Jim, former former Marine, we kind of count that. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, we're all going to get together and we're going to do a round table on that and um, see where it fits our needs, what we think, and how it plays. You know, obviously we won't have a lot of games, but, you know, we can kind of get perspectives on it. So we want to get more into the meat and potatoes of games. Um, so you guys can decide if this system or game is right for you. So, Jim, awesome. that's an yeah, exciting book. series. I have to yeah, say. The book, the, the, that, that Ultra Combat book, I haven't had a chance to actually read it yet, but I do have it, and I have kind of looked through it. Uh-huh. And, yeah, the book, just from a from a design perspective, looks looks great. It looks amazing. Um, a, a nice blend of detail combined with clarity. You can tell just by the graphic layout or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's very... Um, it's definitely a high-quality product. Again, I haven't tried the game yet, so I can't give it like an actual full review, but it, just looking at the book, it looks great. Yeah, it really does. So let's talk a little bit news, and then we'll do some uh, rules and game discussion. Um, so rules-wise, or excuse me, news-wise, Spectre <laughs> Miniatures has ramped it up again. They have two big items that have come out, and Ralph asked me to make sure we hit on these. Uh, the first one being that they have gone in kind of, if you will, partnership with uh, Black Sight Terrain 
which is now making a series of modern terrain. It's MDF terrain. Um, and they have what they're calling an Arabic hotel. It kind of reminded me of the Olympus Hotel. Um, if anybody has ever heard that name before, um, it's from Black Hawk Down or the Olympic Hotel um, from Mogadishu from 93. Um, mm -hmm. So it looks really good. I'm trying to bring it up here. So they have a whole new set of modern terrain, and they posted it on their site on Facebook as well several days ago, and I'm like, wow, that's really impressive. That'll make a really nice table. And then like two days later, Spectre posts that they have now gotten to a partnership with uh, Black Site, and they're going to be like their UK distributor. So you'll be able to order that terrain online from Spectre, so, yeah. which is amazing. I'm trying to figure out where Black Site is from. I guess I should have looked that up first. Um, but I don't well, know. Well, if, if, if you're looking for that, let me let me fill up some space yeah, while you're looking for that. Um, okay, so on the website, uh, I'm on Tabletop Beast where I've been doing these articles since, you know, Lord knows when. And I had tons of World War II um, terrain, you know, hanging around. Well, then I started to make a pivot to Vietnam, Ukraine 2014, um, even Arab-Israeli war stuff. So I'm like, okay, how do you turn your World War II terrain into modern terrain uh, relatively quickly. It's not going to be perfect. I'm not saying to not buy this great new terrain. I'm sure it's awesome. But also to supplement that, I would say the fastest way to turn um, your old terrain into new terrain, your World War II terrain, which almost everybody has, into uh, much more modern looking terrain with two relatively quick um, additions. And you can even do this with stuff that you have laying around the house. Um, and uh, three words, chain link fences. What's one thing you never, ever see on a World War II battlefield is chain link fence. Right. And what's one thing that you're in a modern city you can't look in any direction without seeing at least a little bit of is chain link fence. Uh, chain link fence, you get some wooden dowels, you get some... Um, Depending on the scale, you can use uh, like I, I use I, I play in fifteen and twenty mils, so I use something relatively small. I use those splatter uh, trays or splatter pan covers that you get from uh, Walmart or whatever. Uh, you put over your frying pan, so when you're, you're frying something in the pan, it doesn't splash out or whatever. That stuff bends and cuts with just regular kitchen scissors with ridiculous ease. You can cut it into strips, and you can have a whole you can have ten feet of chain link fifteen millimeter or twenty millimeter fencing in like a couple hours nice um you put a little bit of rust effect on it you put a little bit of wash on it and it looks amazing and you can put it on a world war ii table and bam that's now a 1960s 1970s 1980s table and the other thing to add are some uh, some more modern looking street lights um obviously in world war ii the telegraph poles and uh, the street lights they had street lights but they didn't look like the street lights we have today um a little bit of that and a little bit of modern signage uh, you slap it on some old buildings, and it turns your World War II cafe into a you know 1980s bed and breakfast, um, you know ridiculously fast. Um, that plus some of this terrain that you see coming out mm -hmm. uh, from these companies, and you're going to have a modern table before you know it. That is awesome. Did you do a project uh, blog or anything on the on the chain link? Uh, I entered it in one of the scattered terrain challenges way back in the day. Um, I don't know if I still have the images for it, but it's, uh, it's out there okay. somewhere. Okay. Awesome. So just to make sure we have all the details correct, the actual company is called Black Sight Studio, and they are based out of Texas. 
Okay. So, which is great for us, because um, they're you know usually some of the train makers are either out of the UK or Australia. Uh, there's a couple really good ones here in the US, um, but this is awesome. So that you know, like I said, they've teamed up with Spectre, and they're going to be uh, their UK distributor for uh, Spectre will be. And they we're looking at uh, we're looking at 28 millimeter for this hotel. It is 28 millimeter, and they've it's um, called the. Let me see what they called it. The Arabic uh, War Zone Arabia is what they're calling it. Um, so they've got a wide variety of uh, different buildings that you can use. That they've, you know, they got a hotel. They got some smaller buildings, some stores, some battle damaged buildings. Um, so it's looking like you could put a really nice table together on this. That's the tough part. I built a lot. I scratched a lot of my own buildings, and buildings in good order are pretty easy to build. Once you want to start, like. If to build ruins is actually a much harder prospect um, than to build like intact buildings. Yeah. So whenever a game company comes out with like ruins, that's usually what I buy. I usually, I usually buy the ruined ones because I can build the 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 the, um, the um, operational buildings, like the intact buildings, pretty quickly. You know, myself, it's fun and it's you know obviously less expensive. But man, ruined buildings is another whole order of magnitude of time, effort, um, difficulty. Uh, expense. So when it comes to buying terrain, I would definitely recommend, um, you know, to any kind of board gamer that wants to put, you know, a good table together relatively quickly. Yeah. Buy ruined buildings because you try to build them yourself. You're going to be at it for a while. And if that's your thing, then great. But you just have to know up front, that's going to be a big investment in time and effort and expense. So if you're going to be expending a lot anyway, you know what? Buy the uh, the damaged buildings, you know, uh, from companies like this, and um, yeah, you'll be at it a lot sooner. Yeah, and I can tell you from personal experience, you can't take a assembled building and damage it to make it better oh, damage. Really? It just yeah. ruins the building. You know, it just I, looks I, like I a took broken a small ball of peen hammer. I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna knock out this wall. I'm gonna do no. It didn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> no, it didn't work so much. So I just had a pile of stuff. So those buildings looks really good. Um, I'm hoping we can reach out to them and uh, I'll see if I can get my hands on a couple of them and we can do a review. And I know um, Walt I, I'm not looking at the image in front of me. buildings as well. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not really looking at the image in front of me. Right? So I'm kind of going by what you're saying. Um, so if it looks like the hotel in say Blackhawk down, that's going to be a relatively, especially a 28 millimeter. That's going to be a relatively large, uh, piece of terrain, right? That's like a two or three story hotel. Uh, it is a three story hotel. Um, it doesn't look exactly like the Olympic hotel, but you could use it as, uh, right. it's a one, two, three, three story. It's got, uh, stories two and three have, um, for back balconies. Um, right. and then there is the rooftop with a stairwell coming out of a, you know, a small building on top. I can't remember what they call that, but, and then it has like a signage, um, that says hotel I'm trying to reach the sign, hotel Baghdad is what they call it. So it looks good. You could definitely use it for a Mogadishu, uh, style. You know, you would just have to not put the sign up or get, you know, make your own hotel Olympic right. sign on it, but it definitely could be used as it, it doesn't have a courtyard or anything like the, Hotel Olympic. And then speaking of chain link fence, they have chain link fence. Oh, perfect. There you go. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, the terrain looks really good. 
Uh, so we'll definitely have to reach out to him, see if we can get some. And, we, you know, it could be one of our first reviews, um, you know, what we call our series Breach and Clear, which is our reviews So and unboxings. Um, the other thing that Spectre has produced recently is a new vehicle. You know, they had their, um, what was it, a BMP that they released not too long ago? I'm terrible with uh, Soviet armor. Uh, BMP is is the trunk one or the wheeled one? Uh, I'm trying to pull it up here. Oh, okay. Um, uh, BMP one, two, or three are their tracked APCs, and the BTR series are BTR. their wheeled. Yeah, it's a okay, BTR. Okay, yeah, those those the wheel IFVs. Yeah, it's a BTR. And again, it depends on who you're talking to, what those two terms mean. But I use APCs for tracked vehicles, IFVs for wheeled vehicles. That's not exactly universal, but. Comments below. <laughs> yeah. I, I, all I know is Soviet, bad, blow it up. That's how there I was you trained. You know, I, you got to remember, I started my military career in the high, you know, in the tail end of the Cold War, if you will, where we still thought of the Soviet Union as the really bad, bad guys. So, you know, oh, yeah. Soviets, blow it up. Um, so anyway, so they brought that out not too long ago, and they just showed pictures off of their next vehicle, which is a JTLV, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yep. So is that a British um, a JTLV? I, I, I've never, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm actually not familiar with that. I'm going to say I think it's British. Um, I think it is because it's not an MRAP. Um, you know, our, it, it, looks, it looks like an up-armored uh, crew cab pickup. So... Um, I'll have to research this one a little bit more, but the detail on it is amazing. And it's got a 50 cal mounted 50 cal with, um, smoke grenade launchers. It's, you know, it's the remote, I think it's the remote operated one, if I'm not mistaken, where you can, you know, they, okay. they don't expose the crew anymore. And it's got, um, the joint, the joint light tactical vehicle. Yep. Okay. Once you know, once you mentioned it had a 50 cal on it, I'm pretty sure that's American. Is it American? Um, okay. It is American. Yeah. I just looked it up. Okay. Um, but, uh, the, yeah, once you say 50 cal, 50 cal is almost like an American stamp. You know, yeah. once you see a 50, well, unless you're talking about like a 12.7 millimeter, which again, this is a 50 cal. Yeah. Um, the Soviets, I think still mount some, um, some old 12.7s, either the old douche or the more modern NSV, uh, machine gun on some of their vehicles. But like, we're talking about like an actual, like mall deuce 50 cal. That's, that's going to be American or an American client state at the very least. Um, but yeah, this looks like a new, uh, I was actually not, it looks like a, uh, like a Humvee on steroids. Almost. Sure does. Okay. Sure does. On a lot, on a lot of steroids. Holy crap. This thing's huge. <laughs> <laughs> awesome yeah it looks really good so uh i'm telling you what specter is setting the bar for modern wargaming at least on the on the skirmish you know uh squad level right uh you know genre um you know when you're talking whether you're using an a detachment at special forces you know a detachment so you know 12-man team um the SAS, I don't know what their standard operational size is uh, for, a, you know, you know, an alpha detachment for the SF is 12-man, which can be broken down into two six-man teams. Um, yeah, I was going to say, most special forces are either 12 or 6s. Yeah. So, so it's looking really good. They're putting out some good stuff. Some of these other companies need to step up their game a little bit. 
Uh-oh. I'm telling you. So speaking of SAS, uh, something I saw on the news this week, and it was posted on the Spectre, and I'm assuming you followed the news. You heard about the Nairobi hotel attack um, that happened this past week? I don't know if you have okay. it. Well, they had a, a, some Somali terrorists yep. took over a hotel in Nairobi. You know, unfortunately, some people passed away. And But there is a picture of a lone SAS member of the regiment who went into the building to take out the bad guys all by himself. He Supposedly, the story is he was on a shopping trip. For they, you know, the SAS along with other special operations forces from other countries, were in in Kenya to help train Nairobi special forces. So he had gone into Nairobi to do some shopping or some other administrative stuff. Saw the commotion, heard what was going on, ran back to whatever vehicle he was had, which had his kit in it. He kitted up and went into the building to, to do business until the you know the Nairobi special forces, anti-terrorists, whatever teams could get there and help, you know, clean up the mess. So, I'm telling you what, That's SIS crazy. do not mess around. They never have. They're they're almost like the original special forces. Oh, yeah. They've been around. Uh, the LRD, we talked a lot about this back at the boot camp because that was, like, Operation Crusader was literally the first time the SAS was ever used. And they didn't even call the SAS yet. It was, um, well, there was a long-range desert group, which was not the SAS. They get confused a lot. But then they were it was like this special something, special service brigade or something. Um, they weren't even technically the SAS yet, and uh, that was the reason we were talking about them at the boot camp. So they they go they go back to uh, late November 1941. Now that first mission was a bit of a disaster, but they quickly found their feet and they've never looked back. They're they're definitely uh, they're definitely uh, yeah. And as far as Kenya goes, yeah, that's obviously a former British colony. Uh, those ties from strong even in the, in the post-colonial period or whatever so I, i'm not surprised at all to hear that um, the sas still has a presence or at least some eyes uh, somewhere in kenya i'm actually more surprised to hear that uh somali i guess these are what like somali militia somali rebels supposedly they're tied into al-qaeda okay you know so I was going to say because that's much more of an international organization. Yeah. Um, so the old the old Somali warlords uh, that we see in you know Black Hawk Down and, and so on. That's that's much more of a local effort. So apparently they've been uh, kind of uh, co-opted by um, Al Qaeda or maybe even ISIS. Who knows? I mean, I'm just I'm completely conjecturing here. Uh, some more international kind of uh, organizations. Yeah. Um, yeah, to be, you know, going, you know, abroad, so to speak. I mean, Kenya is like, you know, literally right next door um, off of Somalia's, you know, southern border there. But nevertheless, it's outside of Somalia, which is actually a little uh, unsettling. It is. It is. That, they're, that, they're, that, that, that conflict is spreading out. Kenya is always... Uh, Kenya, I mean, since the 60s, at least, Kenya hasn't been like the... It's not like, you know, Mulberry Street, but it's been, a, especially for Africa, it's been a relatively peaceful country um, outside of, you know, there were some terrorist attacks here in the late nineties or whatever during Clinton's time. And of course, you know, the wars back in the sixties. Yeah. Um, so it's actually kind of, you know, sad to hear that uh, Somalia's troubles are starting to spread out further South into, um, into a new country. Yeah. Well, supposedly there was some political agenda behind it where they were blaming our current president, you know, for something he said. So who knows? 
But, uh, you know, the point is this SAS operator went in and took care of business, which just goes to show you that they still can handle business. I mean, look at what was it? The um, was it the Iranian embassy in London? Um, All right. You know, when they went in and cleaned house there as well and showed the world, you know, what it is that they do best. So what's crazy is that it was a lone guy. I mean, those guys are trying to fight in teams. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, you know, Green Berets and Navy SEALs and SAS, GSG-9, even guys from the other side like Spetsnaz or whatever. I mean, they're all, you know, you know, obviously natural badasses, so to speak. But they're also military units that are trained to fight it as a team. So I don't think that, uh, I mean, obviously I wasn't there, but it, I don't think he went into that building lightly. That that I'll have to read more about the situation. I would say the situation had to be actually pretty severe when he felt compelled to walk in there yeah. alone. That's that's not something that's in his, uh, I, I don't know the guy, but it, it's not something that's in an operator's, um, you know, they don't see themselves as Rambo. You know, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to kill everybody because I'm awesome or whatever. Right. They're like, where's my team? You know, where's my, they're, they're trained and they, they think in terms of team and squads and, you know, military tactics. Um, so for him to do what he did, I mean, God knows kudos to the guy. Lord knows how many lives he saved. But um, the situation had to be pretty serious for him to, uh feel like he had to take that action while, you know, more conventional forces, you mentioned Somalia special forces, I'm sorry, um, Kenyan special forces, um, had time to respond. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just think, you know, anybody who's been in the military, you already automatically have a natural sense of protecting those who can't protect themselves. And, you know, if you've got explosions and gunshots going off and people running and screaming, he just probably felt like I've got to do something to help these people and, you know, did what he did. So kudos to him. So, absolutely. you know, and the sad thing is we're never really going to know who he is um, unless he decides to retire and write a book somewhere down the road, you know. So right. that's fine. You know, those type of people that go into those units don't do it for the glory and recognition. So. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit of rules. So the first thing I want to talk about is I have a set of rules called Danger Close. It's from Empress Miniatures. Uh, it's a modern skirmish war game rules. Uh, it's based on squad level. Uh, the rules are 4 to 15 uh, individuals with historical organization equipment defined in the game as follows. So, you know, you have a character's name, obviously, what they have, skills and drills, the character's native ability on the battlefield. Uh, goes from 1 to 5, low to high, 3 and 4 are average for trained soldiers, 5 is elite. Armor, the level of character's armor, this is heavy, light, or none. According to these rules, standard current UK-US style body armor is heavy, special forces style is light. And then morale, primary weapon, a secondary weapon, and grenades. So... It's based on, I believe, D20. Yep, D20. Uh, you know, you have an action table. It's cost and action. So let's see here. Uh, let's see. Characters activate in order of skills and drills. So your skills and drills determines who activates first. Um, obviously, the higher it is, the you're, you're going to activate f before somebody else. Um, okay. It's, so it's, it's like... Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, this, is, this is like the D20 like role-playing system? Uh, yeah, kind of like or is it, or is, the is same it just dice. Using, okay, it's just using a D20 dice? It's just using a D20, and, you know, moving is, 
clear, slightly difficult. You know, it's a very, like I said, it's a front and back of one page. Um, it was written by Matt Moran back in 2015. Um, you know, there's some hand-to-hand -hand, hand -hand combat rules. There's some morale, some support. You know, you've got mortars, obviously, that's going to be off the table, helicopters, off-board sniper, off-board MGs. Uh, something called show of force. Each extra unit engaging an enemy or adds five stress. So there's like some stress. If you're looking for a fast popcorn type game, this is one that you could use. I think it's free download now from Empress, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, when it first came out, you ordered it, and I ordered it thinking, oh, alright, I'm going to get these amazing rolls. And it came as a one-page laminated thing for like 10 pounds. So, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that show of force rule, there's a very similar mechanic to that in Force on Force. Is there? Yeah, where you could actually order, like, build into your list, uh, things like an F-18 strike, but that doesn't drop anything. Yeah. And uh, that's actually really important for, I don't know if this gets into this, I'm not trying to sidetrack the conversation, but as far as how rules work in modern wargaming, um, You'll have regular force and irregular force. And obviously, the regular force has to watch out for civilians. Two squads can't get into a battle or whatever in downtown uh, Baghdad, um, Fallujah, Mogadishu, or whatever. And, you know, the Marine Corps can't just start calling in F-18 carrier strikes, you know, because you're going to kill Lord knows how many civilians. The show of force is the answer to that. The show of force flies. That's like the F-18 zooming overhead, full afterburners at like 100 feet. I mean, if you ever been to an air show, you know what that sounds like. Yeah. Um, and what that does is it actually has an effect. You know, every enemy, every irregular unit has to make a tape, has to make a roll, and they just literally evacuate their bowels and leave the battle area. <laughs> and they count they they count as destroyed units. The good news is you killed no civilians. So it's actually a um, I don't know if it quite means the same thing, but it, that phrase "show of force" was literally like, look. He came over and didn't release anything this time. You really don't want him to come back and start, you know, dropping stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and what that will do is it will help the free world forces or first world forces, whatever you want to call them. It'll help, the, it'll help your regular force clear the table and, and win their engagement without killing unnecessary civilians. That's awesome. So uh, basically what I'm thinking of doing is because I haven't had a chance to truly dive deep into this, you know, it's 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 two pages. Dive deep into it to play it. Um, so we may do a Twitch stream of this game here in the next few weeks, so people can take a look at. It. Like I said, it looks like a very quick uh, popcorn type game. You know, it doesn't have a lot of tactical depth. You know, so, when you're looking. So at how? Go ahead. Maybe it's more. Maybe it's more of a technical question. How would you? Because this is something I'm mildly interested in. How would you uh, Twitch stream a miniatures game? You have to have just like webcams pointing at an yep. actual table, yep. or okay, yep, awesome. Yep, we just have a couple cameras set up. You you know you run it through a switcher, and and that way people can get you know different views. We probably wouldn't make it too complicated because you know it takes away from trying to play the game, but uh, at least yeah. they get an idea of the game. Um, okay. You know, like I said, it's got a lot of modifiers, to, you know, on your, D you basically roll a D20, add your modifiers, whoever has the best modifier, and then, it, you know, so just as an example, close combat. So for hand-to-hand -hand combat, 
Add modifiers to the roll to find out the final effect. A natural 1 or 20 always results in the appropriate death. So if you get a 2 or less with modifiers, the attacker dies. Holy crap. Yep. On an 18 plus, uh, the defender dies. So How does the attacker die? Is it like a... Um, well, you're in hand-to-hand -hand combat, so... Oh, oh, gotcha. No, yeah. No, yeah, in hand-to-hand -hand okay. combat. So... As far as ranges, so if you go back to weapons, like a pistol has a 24-inch range. Okay, right. I could see that. Yeah, pistols you know, are are extremely short range. Yeah, They're long for range that hard have us believe. Yeah. yeah. You know, rifle doesn't look like they have any range. SMG, no range. Um, shotgun, and everybody in two inches gets hit. Okay. Uh, grenades, it's a four-inch. Um Everybody within oh so within two inches it's an automatic hit. Is that what they mean? Well, no. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I was gonna say because it's not like an area effect weapon. Yeah. Where it, yeah. <laughs> so, that's a really open choke shotgun. So it throws based on your dice roll, based on your dice roll, they can be either lightly wounded, seriously wounded, or dead. Okay. Uh, I, I, yeah. Again, that sounds a lot like force on force. Does it really? A okay. lot like force on force. A guy gets hit in force on force. Um, there's a roll that's based on troop quality and also armor. And um, you actually have to track, you know, there's a chance that when, when, a, when a miniature gets hit in force on force, um, especially for free roll forces, um, for insurgent forces, it's much more. Okay, I'm kind of saying three sentences at once here. Let me start over. Force on Force has almost uh, Force on Force. One of the great things about Force on Force, it's almost two rule books, you know. And it's like we always say this in uh, when we're trying to sound like you know Sunsa or whatever, you know, some big time military analyst. You know, warfare is always about the side that gets the other the enemy to play his game. Well, Force on Force actually takes that somewhat literally. Uh -huh. And Force on Force will have and there's literally the first two-thirds of the book is here are the rules here's how you move here's how you shoot and here's how you roll initiative the usual things we see in a, in a modern miniature in any miniature uh, war game set and then you get two-thirds of the way through the book and then you turn another page it's like okay we're going to start over here's how an irregular army works here's how they move here's how they shoot here's how they do morale here's how they take casualties it's another whole rule set pretty much I'm slightly exaggerating there but that's it's practically another whole rule set so when you're up against a insurgent force in force on force the two players are literally playing two uh, again slightly exaggerating but they're more or less playing two different rule sets which actually puts a really great uh, asymmetric feel in the game where it's like okay if i can if i'm playing the insurgency if i can turn this into a street battle like you know black hawk down or fallujah or something like that the free world is going to lose Conversely, if the free world can turn it into a conventional battle with tanks and, and you know, long-range firepower and training and superior firepower applied against fixed targets, right? the free world is always going to win. It's who can get the other side to play his rule set. And, okay, so an insurgent force, ironically, is a lot more like we think of when we think of standard Flames of War, bolt action, chain of command type miniature games. You roll dice, you roll to hit, you inflict, you inflict damage, and where the enemy is hit, you take that miniature off the table. Because an Afghan insurgent gets shot in the arm, he's combat ineffective, he's running away. 
He's not a trained soldier. He doesn't have a trained medic two feet away from him with, you know, disinfectant, a field dressing. He's not wearing body armor. He doesn't have morphine. He doesn't have all these other things. Whereas a free world or a first world soldier, whatever you want to call it, a regular forces soldier, depending on his level of training, gets hit. Now you roll a dice. Is it no effect? Okay, we see this in all kinds of you know movies, and we read about it in in, uh, in uh, real life after action reports, where a guy's running across the street, he gets hit, he gets knocked down flat. He took an AK round in the chest, and now he's down. And by the time the medic gets to him, he's literally shaking it off. You know, it either glanced off his body armor or something. You know, he basically is shaking it off. Um, or a piece of uh, RPG shrapnel went into his helmet. And because he's wearing a helmet and the insurgent isn't, he can shake it off. So you can either have no effect, a light wound, a heavy wound, or a kill. And then, so that's the advantage of the free world, of the free world force. The disadvantage is that if it is, even if it's a kill, you know, no man left behind. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a lightly wounded guy, you have to keep track of it. There's a little bit of paperwork in the game. You have to keep track of the lightly wounded guy. But if he's lightly wounded, he can still fight. He has like a negative one point uh, off of it, and he slows down his squad a little bit. But a heavily wounded guy can accompany the squad. He can't fight anymore, and he slows it down. But you're not allowed to just leave him there. You can casualty evacuate him by sacrificing another one of your soldiers. Basically, Corporal Jones, take Private Smith and, you know, get him back to the dust-off point or whatever. You know, off he goes. Or even a kill. You have to, you know, that kill is going to slow down the squad because they, they're going to come back and they have to, you know, get that guy home. Right. You know, back to his family, if nothing else. Um, the free world force has to do... So, the point is, is that as far as, like, the levels of wounds go, that's been done uh, partially in force on force. I say partially because the insurgency, I mean, they leave their dead in the street and they don't care. And um, if a guy gets wounded, um, even if it's only a light wound, it's all considered, you know, combat and effective because he gets shot through the hand. You know, he's not getting paid. You know, he's, he's out of there and he doesn't have all the, you know, the morale training and medical advantages that the first world soldier has. Um, so any hit on an insurgent force makes them, you know, combat and effective, much more like a traditional miniature game. Whereas the free world forces seem like their casualties behave a lot more like what you're talking about here uh -huh. um, in this game, in this game that, 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 you know, you're discussing. Interesting. So uh, we'll have to give this a try and see what happens. Um, you know, I, I want to get through the whole process of seeing how it flows. Because I'm looking at the injury chart. You, know, you have light, serious, dead, and I'm trying to figure out, can you be lightly wounded more than once? Um, it appears not. So basically what it looks like is if you're lightly wounded once and you get wounded again, it automatically becomes a serious unless it's a dead. So it's like you go one column up each time you get hit. So um, I don't know. Well, I'll have to see, see what happens. Uh, if anybody out there has played this rules, we'd be interested in hearing from you. Make sure you mention it in the comments. Um, otherwise, we'll get a, a game together on it. So before we wrap up for today's show, one of the things I th uh, thought about that since you and I have both attended the Team Yankee Boot Camp and we've had experience playing the game, um, what would you do to make the game better for you? If you could sit down... Uh, with the guys from Battlefront and say, you know, Phil Yates and, and go, 
this is what I think would make the game over the top for me. Right. What would you say? Um, a lot of it they've already done, to be perfectly honest. Um, we wrote an article series on Team Yankee a little while ago where we kind of hit this um, point rather repeatedly, so I won't belabor it here. But on a, on a very quick summary um, level, anyone who does, who sits down to design a game based on Team Yankee is almost by definition in something of a tough position. Okay. Team Yankee, the novel, Harold Coyle, 1988, I believe, um, when he wrote the book, he was a major in the U.S. Army. He was in tanks, actually. He was a U.S. Army uh, armored uh, either ops officer or an XO. I think he was an ops officer because in the book, the S3 ops officer is like the hero and everything he does. He's always right. He's like the Jedi of the book. Um, so I think he was an ops officer. <laughs> um, but, uh, okay. He, when he, if, if you actually own a copy of Team Yankee, the novel, mm-hmm. on which Team Yankee, the game, is based, you open it up, you look at the foreword, and you say, it's Harold Coyle saying, look, I did not make up this world. I shamelessly borrowed the grand setting, or whatever, for Team Yankee from um, Sir John Hackett's uh, Third World War in Europe, August 1985. So that was the universe, so to speak, in which he set the Team Yankee novel. So when you're playing Team Yankee, spoilers, you're not really playing Team Yankee. You're playing Third World War in Europe, 1985. Sure. Especially if you're playing the Dutch, the French, the British, you know, the East Germans or whatever, the expanded universe, so to speak. Okay, great. Um, the problem is, uh, you know, this book is, it was, it sat on the desk of two presidents, um, it was a, uh, it's a, the guy was the former commander of NATO forces up in Brussels, um, General Sir John Hackett. So he is not a lightweight as far as, you know, he knows what he's talking about. So obviously his book is looked on as a, you know, authority on the subject. The problem is that book was published in 1977, and which means he wrote it in 1975 or so, when 1985 was the dark and distant future. And he made a lot of guesses. Um, educated guesses, probably the best educated guesses any man could make at the planet at the time, but nevertheless guesses. And some of those guesses turned out to be wrong. So when you're making a game based on Team Yankee, you're almost in an unenviable position. Are you going to make a game that is almost intentionally inaccurate or inaccurate from a alternate historical perspective? In other words, are you going to try and make a game that does not perfectly show what 1985 battlefield would have looked like or are you unfaithful to the source material they chose the former and they had you know us m1s fighting t72s like exactly what probably would not have happened Mm -hmm. um and so on and so forth Uh, unless you're in the extreme south of western germany then you're in a different group of soviet forces that would have used t72s but that's all in the article series um the good news is as soon as they came out with this book and the initial rollouts, they then said, okay, they, they came out with what I'm talk, talking about specifically is the Red Thunder um, a supplement, where they rolled out tanks like the T-64, um, which is a much better choice than the T-72. They then made the further correct decision, and when you actually look at the cards, we're talking about detailed rules information, the cards of the T-64 actually make it a better tank than the T-72. T-72 is a tank that's 
Soviets almost never wanted to use. It was built almost exclusively for the export market. Starting with the T-62 back in the early 60s, the Soviet tank evolution divides into two forks. Okay, they started building tanks for their army and the tanks for, and they were going to export to everyone else. T-72 belongs to that latter group. That's mostly for export. Some T-72s do eventually make it into Soviet uh, force uh, usage, especially in the mid to late 80s when they're trying to bridge the gap between the T-64 and the subsequent T-80. But really, the T-72 was never meant for Soviet use. And it shows in its design. It is a it is an atrocious tank. Um, it really is abominable to the point where even the Russians won't use it if they have any choice in the matter. They go straight from the T-64 to the T-80. And these are the kinds of things that Team Yankee, Red Thunder, and some of the other subsequent um, materials that they've come out with since then show this. And this is where they're starting to pivot away from the original source material, i.e. Team Yankee the novel, and into what 1980s armored warfare would have god forbid actually looked like sure at least between you know germany and major nato units in west germany so they've made the first big round of uh, of correction so as far as like things that i would suggest for them to do they've actually already done it they're doing a really great job on that the only other thing that i would really do with team yankee and this isn't even a thing um that i would do and I would suggest that they do like to republish the game or make any kind of modifications or updates or supplements is just me personally on my table. I would play it in six mil. Oh, really? Okay. Or even, or, or even smaller. Most of the problems that a lot of hardcore tacticians or, you know, would be tabletop tacticians, you know, have with games like team Yankee is the scale between the units, the vehicles, the terrain and the ranges of the weapons. Um, I, and this isn't even just a Team Yankee thing. This is with Force on Force or even uh, uh, Iron Fist Publishing's uh, Battle Group. I always underclock the scale by at least one notch. So if the game is written for 20 mil, I play it at 15 or even 10. If the game was written for 15, I go down to 10 or even 6 or down to Hex Encounters or who knows what. You know, I'll play the game on a much smaller scale than it was originally published for. Sure. And that alleviates a lot of the problems as far as like, one of the things that people complain about in Team Yankee are what they call tank parking lots. You know, you get five T-72s on a four foot table and they're almost going to be parked bumper to bumper because they're these big, awesome, you know, 15 millimeter gorgeous models or whatever. And people love to paint them and they look amazing on the table. But by the time you put them on a realistic I don't want to say realistic, realistic from a gaming perspective, like not everybody can play on a, on a 20 foot table or whatever, you know, on a, on a practical gaming table. I remember at the Team Yankee boot camp, we had six hind gunships on four by four tables and uh -huh. the rotors on those things are like eight inches across. You literally could not put your hinds end to end on the four foot table. And when they were, they were, the rotors were hitting each other. Right. I want to see, hel I want to see helicopter pilots actually do that in real life. Nope. Nope. The, nope. the, the rotors are literally like interlocking with each other, like gears and a clock, you know? <laughs> and again, it's just that by the time you make the miniatures a certain scale and you keep a true scale, and then you try to put it on a, what most people would consider a practical gaming table in their garage or their dining room or gaming club or whatever, it starts to look really strange. Playing at six mil or even smaller, 
on the same size table. Don't change any of the ranges. The ranges are right. Just play with much, much smaller pieces mm-hmm. on much, much smaller terrain. Same size table, you know. Yeah. The amount of real life battlefield that a six by eight table covers in six mil is a lot different than what it covers in fifteen mil. It's like literally, I think eight times as much or four times as much, uh, you know, square kilometers or whatever. Um, it's really going to fix a lot, of, a lot of the small, um, you know, grognard kind of. Ooh, why does that look like that? that? Doesn't you know? It fixes all that. Play on a much smaller scale and use the Red Thunder, uh, use the Red Thunder uh, expansions, and uh, yeah, you're you're halfway home. I agree. Is, is what I would say. Yeah, I agree with you. It definitely gives it a different feel and gives the uh, ranges a much better, you know, more realistic realistic feel and you're right it doesn't create the parking lot scenario yeah i mean if you, okay you you put four t72 models on a team yankee table at 15 mil you want to put them within six inches of each other which i think in some of the rules they actually do have to re- remain within a certain distance of each other for command purposes you end up with the, with the tank parking lot okay if you play with six mil and you keep all those same distances there's now a lot of space between all those tanks with actual tactical dispersion and it looks like an actual unit on maneuvers and it just it just it fixes a lot of problems yeah. i think my biggest it's it's not really a complaint it's a criticism where i'm being a little too picky i think is that when they designed the, and I understand why they did it. When when Phil and the group designed the game, and they said, "Okay, uh, the UK is going to have this, the Americans, the Americans are going to have this, the West Germans are going to have this, Russia is going to have this, so on and so on." Right. You know, they did it to, I think, to balance out it the best they could. One of my biggest gripes, as far as the game as it is or was in its initial iteration, was. The Soviets had Air Mobile. UK has Air Mobile. The US has no Air Mobile. Oh, yeah. Um, sorry, guys. We kind of invented it. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> called Vietnam. We invented it. So. Um, and, and you speak from a place of personal experience and authority on that, on that topic. Yeah. So. It, there, there is that. Uh, I, I know. Okay, so uh, to me, Team Yankee is about tank warfare. Let's let's be honest. I think the infantry, the mechanized infantry, that aspect was just added in for flavor. But when you really look at the game, it's the bit major concentration, and you can correct me, if, you know, if you think differently, right. is armor. It, it's it's a game of armor, just like Flames of War is. You know, right. while you have infantry and artillery and stuff, the, the meat and potatoes, everybody wants to bring a whole bunch of tanks on the table and slug it out with armor. Um, right. But I actually don't mind that either in Team Yankee or in Flames of War. Yeah. Because let's face it, if you're in like a sidestep into World War II, just for a second, if you want to play an infantry heavy game, you have command, uh, I'm sorry, chain of command or bolt action. Yeah. Or, um, you know, Iron Fist Publishing, uh, you know, a battle group games. If you want to play a big battalion size plus tank and artillery engagement, you have Flames of War. Forward line to World War to World War Three, you know, Team Yankee setting. Again, tanks. Whereas, you know, what where what can you do a huge tank battle in Skirmish Sanguine, you know? 
or in force on force? I, no, not really. So as far as, you know, Team Yankee filling a niche or whatever, big tank battles in a theoretical World War III, um, if you are seriously interested in air mobile operations, um, are you even playing Team Yankee or are you playing, you know, skirmish or mass or, um, ultra combat or, you know, some other more infantry heavy, uh, you know, kind of a modern warfare game? Right. Uh, you know, to me, at some point, I mean, I like Team Yankee. I enjoy playing it. Um, but at times, I want to have a more robust game, um, a more balanced game where I have not only armor, I have infantry, I have aviation assets, you know, which Team Yankee does scratch, but there's not even airborne assets. Come on. You know, right. you want to drop the 75th Ranger Bat behind enemy lines to capture a supply depot or an airfield. You know, I granted, now when we're talking something like that, 15 mil, you can't do it. It would be, the scale is just off because you don't have enough real estate on a table to honestly do that unless you're going to say the front line is right at the edge of your table. You know, right. so your allies are not even on the table as far as the front line, if you will. And so the whole table is the enemy's, you know, rear area and you're dropping in and then doing, you know, those type of uh, actions. So you can make it work. Now, if you go down to six mil, 10 mil, yeah, obviously you can do it, you know, make it a little bit easier. So everything's flexible. Um, I don't know. I just, we, we invented I, Air Mobile. Gosh, how about, how about huh? I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Um, and again, I'm not. I'm not trying to, you know, argue against you. In fact, if anything, I'm trying to propose solutions. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, as far and even staying within Battlefront and uh, and their Flames of War slash Team Yankee line, um, I haven't had a chance to look at the new release, but I know it's out there. I have seen the old release, but American Air Mobile is handled pretty heavily in Nam. Yeah. Uh, Tour of Duty initially, and then the later Nam supplement. That came out in uh, 2018, February 2018. So I don't know if you could kind of boost those rules out of NOM, or maybe this is why they didn't include, because um, they don't want to like, endlessly repeat themselves or you know feel like they're just like rehashing old terrain or whatever. Sure. But may maybe that's why they didn't include it, because they're like, look, we can only include three or four things per faction for Team Yankee. And the Americans, quite honestly, already have air mobile covered, you know, helicopter infantry operations well covered in the NOM supplements. Maybe we should go a different direction with the Americans in, uh, in Team Yankee. Uh, and if players are interested in using air mobile units, American air mobile units, they can either adapt the British ones or the they can use the American, um, the rules out of the Vietnam supplement. Um, you know, early 1970s to early 1980s isn't that much of a stretch. Uh, maybe some of the helicopters are different. Uh, I don't know where you would find one to 100 Blackhawks. But I don't, were Blackhawks even around at, at Team Yankee timeline, strictly oh, yeah. speaking? Yeah. Uh, Blackhawks came into service in the late 70s. Okay, definitely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean... Um, I'm not 100% sure when Germany got them. Um, right. I'd have to go back and look. But, you know, what was the time frame that teammate? Was it 83, 85? August, August 85. Okay, so yeah, oh, definitely in 85. Strict, 
the strict canonical timeline yeah. uh, of Team Yankee War. It starts like four August, 1985. Um, but again, that's, that's only if you're playing out of the novel, who knows, you know, Team Yankee obviously is all in history. There's not exactly a, you know, a real life history that you have to stick to <laughs> by right. any means. Um, so yeah, but pretty much mid to late eighties is what I'm always uh, kind of picturing. Okay, or at least mid eighty, mid mid early eighties, because they still don't have a T eighty to my knowledge. Will somebody please <laughs> make a hundred millimeter T eighty? God, of all the things that nobody makes, unless someone else makes it, I just don't know about it. Right now, I have some uh, some Svezda T seventy two Ks. That's T-72s with the Contact 5 uh, reactive armor panels mm-hmm. that I'm using as kind of a proxy for my T-80s. Um, now, of course, I have to make up my own stats for them. Um, and that's for, uh, yeah, pretty much any kind of a T-80. Uh, I do have a nice 20-millimeter T-80 I bought for uh, Force on Force for use in the Ukraine. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. T-80s were mostly built in Kharkov which is now part of the Ukraine. So when the Soviet Union fell in the late 80s, early 90s, they pretty much lost that. I was speaking before about how Soviet tank development kind of splits in two uh, branches. Uh They lost, to a certain extent, their native made for the Soviet Army, Red Red Army. They haven't called it the Red Army since 1946. They lost their native T-64, T-80 line of tanks which is why most of those tanks are now in the Ukrainian army and they're continuing to develop from there. Whereas the Soviet T-90s, uh, until that line finally died out, is mostly ironically based on the T-72. Um, made in plants in either in Leningrad or Volgograd and, and Chelyabinsk and other places. But anyway, um, so needless to say, I wanted both a T-64 and a T-80 for my Ukrainian army. And those are in... Uh, those are in 20 millimeter force on force. Uh, I'm trying to remember how I got on this tangent, but, um, oh yeah, you know that. Okay. Uh, well, one more thing, as far as like what I would ask for, somebody please make a T 80 one to hundred miniatures so I can put it up with my, my leopard twos and my, you know, um, and my other Soviet T 72 force. I'll just kind of fill out the rest of my Soviet, uh, team Yankee army. Some T eighties, please. There you go. So, I think that's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, the only thing we have left to do is we have to announce some winners. Yeah, here we go. If I can uh, get the pages up here. So, hello, where are you? Oh, where are you? This is for the uh, 100 subscriber mark? Yep. Awesome. Sure is. Uh, Let me pull up the page here, and we can go to it. Uh, Okie dokie. Sorry, computer's running a little behind. Uh, Well, that's coming up. Let me pull up a little bit of dead air here. Please. we are continuing to run, everybody, our um, weekly war games. Um, if anyone's ever interested, again, we're, we're, it's mostly Dark Star. We run at least one Dark Star game a week. But again, this is the Modern Warfare podcast. We are also doing Arab-Israeli wars 
and Valor and Victory Vietnam. Valor and Victory was originally written by Barry Doyle. Uh, it's free to print and play if you go to ValorandVictory.com. It's an awesome little game system. It's pretty much advanced squad leader for a new generation. I've taken the game. I've kind of reverse engineered, broke it down, broken it down into its, uh, its, its elementary particles, so to speak, and rebuilt Built it with 1960s weapons, AKs, M16s, M60s, bloopers, laws, things like that. And we've been having some great 1960s era uh, Valorant victory games. If you're ever interested in that, just uh, either hit this this thread here on uh, on YouTube or contact me at onpabletopbeastsofwar.com and we'll get you lined up on the schedule. Uh, you can play live. You can play you know real time. You don't need any kind of software. Um, it's just a shared desktop um, kind of a portal uh, with with my my desktop and um yeah see if you have what it takes to uh win the wars of late 1960s early 1970s perfect it sounds like a good time all right jim pick a number between one and 155 one and 155 that's you're how many followers we have right now you're making me choose okay hold on i got some d10s here uh <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna do this in true in true gamer style all right, I am picking um, an odds, like one, one, two, three, hold on, one to 155. That is the one, 112. 112, so, yep. all right. It looks like Christopher Moody, you are the winner of the rule set for Skirmish Sanjin. There you go. Congratulations. Congratulations. So uh, we'll message you and to get your contact info, and we will go from there. All right. Now we got to move on to the YouTube. And right now we have how many? 104 subscribers. Yay. So, All right. There's no, there's no real way to dice 104. You know what? I'm going to do this in Excel here. Hold on. Excel? Okay. Yeah, a random between, because if I do a percentile dice, it robs those last four people of a chance. So let me not do that. So, okay, a rand equals rand between one and 104. Okay, uh, F9 to execute. Okay, we're looking at number uh, 49. Number 49. Okay, let me pull up the list here. And where is everybody? Okay, well... YouTube just credited out on me. So, um, where are you? All right. Well, that one we'll have to get back to because it's not bringing it up. So, we'll post it in the comments below. So, whoever wins, congratulations. That so, was YouTube subscriber number 49. YouTube subscriber for number 49. All right, guys. We'll reach out to you. Uh, that winner will win a set of Games and Gears paintbrushes. Uh, they're really nice. I own several sets of them. They're really uh, good premium brushes. So we'll contact that winner. And Jim, thank you very much for joining us on episode two of season two of the Set Rep Podcast. Awesome. And I am really looking forward to all your projects. Uh, it's going to add a lot to this uh, podcast and this channel. So. I appreciate all your hard work, and we'll get Ralph and Chris back in uh, when they come back from their little projects in the next episode. And remember, we have Twitch. Uh, we're, like, we'll be airing typically on a Thursday night.
uh, or Thursday afternoon, depending on what part of the world, whoever's broadcasting. Um, that'll be our Present Arms. That is our hobby show. And then eventually we'll be airing not only gym specials, but uh, CQB, Close Quarters Battle. That'll be our Let's Plays. And then we have Breach and Clear, which is our unboxings and reviews that'll be coming out in the near future. Uh, Ralph's Ghost Ops. Um, and a couple other projects down the line. So keep, uh, you know, ch uh, subscribe to this channel. Tell your friends. We also have merchandise uh, that you can buy, some really cool T-shirts and coffee mugs and things like that. If you feel like helping us out on Patreon, we are there as well. Uh, we have a couple different levels that will get you different things. Um, every little bit helps uh, because we are all here together as volunteers, and uh, we get no outside support from any manufacturers, so we can keep and be neutral and give you our honest opinions. So until the next episode, for Jim... And myself, we're going to RTB, and we'll see you in the next show. Talk to you later, everybody. <laughs>